as we transition from the activities of John chapter 3 into what I can only describe as an incredible exchange that occurs in John chapter 4, we do because we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're not going to skip anything. We actually do have a few final verses in the third chapter that kind of demand a moment of our attention, our consideration before we get to chapter 4. So, setting some context, in verse 30, which was the last verse that we've looked at, John chapter 3, John the baptizer, not the author, but John the baptizer, also known as John the Baptist. I don't like that because I don't want to offend Methodists. Uh, He wasn't a Baptist. But he makes this incredible, glorious statement. He's talking to his disciples. He's having this incredible conversation. And he says, he remarks, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. For more commentary on that, I encourage you to go back into the archive, listen to our last study. What a powerful, powerful statement. Now, if you're just reading through the chapter, it would be easy to see the remaining verses in John chapter 3 as a continuation of the dialogue that John the baptizer is having with his disciples. And yet, the Greek structure beginning with verse 31, takes a dramatic shift, a radical shift, indicating, more than likely, that John the Apostle is no longer quoting John the Baptizer, but is now concluding the chapter with kind of a few, what I would just say is some summary observations. And John does this a lot in his writing. And so see verse 31, as, as it's the end of John the Baptist. Now John, our author, is giving us a few insights. So let's read. The rest of the chapter, John writing that he, speaking of Jesus, who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. (laughs) He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he, speaking of Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. For God did not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now, in light of the first two chapters, And then Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and John's conversation with his disciples concerning Jesus' growing popularity in the third chapter, our author John is seeking to recap for us several important truths that we've learned thus far about Jesus. Not only does John here affirm Jesus' divinity, he declares that Jesus came from above. But he then points to Jesus' subsequent authority by saying the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Since Jesus came from heaven, it's just logical, right? That he's above all. Not a great translation. Above is, is, is basically over all. He has authority over all things. Aside from Jesus' divinity and natural authority, John also attests, writing, that his testimony, Jesus' testimony, 
certifies, it seals that God is true. And why was that? Well, Jesus came to speak the words of God. John's point here was that Jesus was not just a mortal man speaking truths about God, as a teacher would, or for that matter, for God as a prophet. But because of his divine nature, Jesus spoke as God. Not just about God and not just for God, but as God. It's what John is getting at when he says, he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. But he who is from heaven is above all. Honestly, the plain reading of the end of verse 22, uh, verse 32, and then verse 33, if you look at it, it seems kind of contradictory, right? And yet, in many ways, these two verses are kind of validating the fact that John the Apostle and not John the Baptizer is the one speaking, the one writing. He says at the end of verse 22, right? He says, no one receives his testimony. And then with the next stroke of his pen, what does he say? He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. The two seem to be kind of contradictory. Now keep in mind that John is writing with about a first grade education. If you look at the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, three other letters, and the book of Revelation, and you just do an examination of the Greek, John has a vocabulary of about 600 words. And keep in mind, he's writing years after the fact. He's the last of the four gospel writers. While in John's day that he's writing, there is no question that there were thousands upon thousands, if not millions, multitudes of men and women all over the Roman world who had indeed received Jesus' testimony. What John is trying to articulate here is that he wants his, his, his audience, his reader, to, to understand at this point, in Jesus' earthly ministry, no one really got it. Now, he's an eyewitness to these things. He was there. And he's kind of saying, yeah, okay, now a lot of people certify that his testimony is true. But then, no one received it. No one had a clue who Jesus really was, what his mission really, really centered on, what his purpose was. John closes out his recap by making a most incredible statement, re reaffirming what Jesus earlier said to Nicodemus. John declares the essence of Jesus' mission, and in doing so kind of explains why receiving Jesus' testimony is so important. He writes, look at the very end of the chapter, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Friend, please know that your sin requires the wrath of God. It is an inescapable reality that sin demands judgment for God to remain just. The wages of sin, the Bible says very clearly, is death. And yet the gospel, the message of the gospel, literally the good news, is that there is a way around it. That's the good news of the Bible, the good news of Scripture. And an act of faith, you can accept that God's wrath for your sin was poured out on Jesus at Calvary and then experience everlasting life in place of an eternal death. Or 
And the option still remains. You can reject Jesus. You can reject his offering. And you can make the decision that you're going to take upon yourself God's wrath for sin on the day of judgment. The core implications when you consider Jesus, if you boil it all down, it's rather simple. Jesus and your decisions about him equate to either life or death. And I want you to please hear me. In many ways, it is true that all paths lead to God. That is very true. But don't be mistaken. What happens once you stand before God will be absolutely predicated upon what decisions you've made concerning Jesus and no one else. All paths lead to God, but where they go from that point forward is dependent upon Jesus and a relationship with him. Your decision of Jesus is of such importance, and John is reminding us of this, because your eternal life literally depends on it. Now, as we transition from chapter 3 to 4, we have, in way of kind of introduction, an incredible story. A story most of you are familiar with, but interestingly enough, is only recorded in John's Gospel of Grace. The story of Jesus and the woman at the well. It's iconic. Now, because there is a lot that happens in this passage, I want to begin by doing something we don't typically do, but I think it's important for, for, for this morning's message. I want to read the story in its entirety, and then we're going to start unpacking it. So bear with me. It's 42 verses. We're going to read through the whole thing, set the big picture. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, 
and the one whom you are now with is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> I would say so. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, or, or, or literally, O oh, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who, sp I who speak to you am He, or literally, I am He who is speaking to you. And at this point, His disciples came. And they marveled that Jesus talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to Jesus. In the meantime, his disciples urged Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives, receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he and he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you do have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified that he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. There are a lot of ways that you can approach this particular story. And trust me, I've wrestled with all of them. But I've decided that our approach is going to be, is going to be simple and, and, and a little different. What we're going to do when it comes to this story, is we're going to work our, our way from the outside into the center. This morning, we're going to look at this passage from what I would call the larger, more macro perspective of Jesus leaving Judea to specifically minister in this region known as Samaria. Next Sunday, we'll examine the more particular micro implications of the exchange that Jesus has with this woman at the well. Now John 4 opens. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, heard what? Had heard that his popularity was now eclipsing that of John the baptizer. It was in this moment that Jesus, knowing this, decides it's time to leave Judea. And it appears that there were fundamentally two reasons 
Jesus made this decision first. Back in verse 25 of the previous chapter, we read that, quote, a dispute had arisen between some of John's disciples and the religious establishment. It would seem John the baptizer had grown so popular, he was now taking heat from the establishment. Since a similar confrontation on account of his increasing popularity was likely inevitable, Jesus knowing this, he decides it was, it was wise to bounce. Bounce town with his crew as this type of a showdown was not something he wanted to incur this early into his earthly ministry. So that's the first reason Jesus felt it necessary to leave. Secondly, the text tells us Jesus leaves Judea because it would appear he had an appointment elsewhere, an important one. Well, there is no question Jesus left Judea, according to the text, with Galilee, this region around the Sea of Galilee, as his destination. John provides for us this very interesting detail that Jesus needed to go first through Samaria. So, so get the scene. He's going to leave Judea. He's going to Galilee. But he has to go through Samaria. That's what the text is telling us. I actually, <clears throat> I really like the way the old King James translates this. It reads, he must needs go. I like the way that rolls off the tongue. The idea here is that Jesus found it not just necessary, not just essential, but in some way required that he leave Judea to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee. And needless to say, to a Jew in the first century, such a trek through such a region would have been totally, absolutely unexpected. In the first century, the Jewish people, and you pick up on this as you read through the story, right? The Jewish people held the Samaritans in such disdain that they refused to even step foot in Samaria. And note, it was more than just racism, which it was, or bigotry. Their hatred for the Samaritans, it ran so deep. Jewish pilgrims from Galilee working their way to Jerusalem, they would take an additional day's journey to go out of the way around Samaria to get to their, their destination. So, you got to ask, who were the Samaritans, and why did the Jews hate them so? Now, to answer this question, I'm just going to let Bible scholar David Guzik tackle it. In his commentary, this is what he writes. When the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, they took almost all the population captive, exiling them to the Babylonian empire. All they left behind were the lowest class of society, because they didn't want these lowly regarded people in Babylonia. These ones left behind ended up intermarrying with non-Jewish peoples who slowly came into the region. And the Samaritans emerged as an ethnic and religious group. He continues, Because the Samaritans had a historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of commands and rituals from the law of Moses, together with various other types of superstitions. Most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, disliking them even more than the Gentiles, because they were, religiously speaking, 
half-breeds, possessed a mongrel faith. The Samaritans, David writes, even built their own temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim. But the Jews burned it down in 128 B.C., which obviously made relations between the Jews and Samaritans even worse. Now, right from the jump, you need to understand that Jesus, deciding to leave Judea, the Jewish seat of religious power, to go to Galilee, the home of the, the Jewish populace, that was no big deal. Like, that was not controversial. But then to intentionally go through Samaria, that was downright scandalous. No good Jew would dare do such a thing, yet alone a respected rabbi like Jesus. And yet, Jesus didn't care about the cultural taboo or the societal norms and decided to intentionally go there anyway. Keep in mind, the Jews stayed away from the Samaritans because the Samaritans were seen as religiously heretical and morally detestable. And yet neither, how interesting, neither seems to deter Jesus. The very folks religious people looked down upon were the very people Jesus came down to reach. What a lesson for all of us, an example of Jesus. Again, in light of the fact that he must needs go. The answer as to why, well, it becomes clear with what ultimately happens during Jesus' time in Samaria. Following the unique testimony of the woman at the well who was first to encounter Jesus, we're told beginning in verse 40, you can look at it again, we're told so when the Samaritans had come to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. It's interesting that while in verse 39, the Samaritans of the city believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified, after spending just two days with them, right? We're told that many more believe, not because of the testimony of the woman, but why? They believe because of his own word. There is no question, no doubt, that Jesus left quite an impression with these Samaritans. Now, macro perspective. And the flow of John's gospel of grace, it is not an accident. And it's likely why he's the only one to include this story in his narrative. It's not an accident. Think about it. Think about the implications. As you're working your way through these three chapters, you get to chapter four. The very first group of people John records accepting Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world, was not Jews. Instead, it was Samaritans. That's a shocking development if you're working your way through the text. Now, as you examine the disciples' involvement in this story, it becomes evident that <laughs> they were uncomfortable being in Samaria. I mean, and that might even be saying it mildly. Imagine their reactions when Jesus is like, yeah, we got to leave, we got to bounce, we're going to Galilee. They're like, all right, GPS, worked it out. Go, No, 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 we got to go through Samaria. Huh? 
like, you want to go where? Like, they, they were uncomfortable the whole time. As a matter of fact, when they returned from getting food, only to see Jesus doing the unthinkable. He's not just interacting with a Samaritan. He's interacting with a Samaritan woman at this well. The text tells us that all upon seeing this, they're left wondering why. Why? Though none of them was exactly willing to articulate that, to verbalize their disbelief. And yet Jesus seems to respond to this unspoken disbelief in verse 35. Look at what Jesus says to them. You want to know why we're here? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. Internally, the disciples want to know why Jesus was determined to go to Samaria, and more specifically, why he'd risk his reputation by having a conversation with such a woman. And yet Jesus answers their unspoken disbelief with a challenge a challenge to look beyond their prejudice. He says literally, lift up your eyes and look. Why were they in Samaria? They were in Samaria because Samaria was a field white for the harvest. Jesus was there and he was willing to go, willing to go beyond social taboos to speak to this woman because he knew, he knew things were primed for revival. He knew what was going on in this woman's life. He knew what would result. Now, I, I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, but I do wonder how many harvests we miss out on because we refuse to venture into uncomfortable fields. I, I wonder... How many ready fields remain unharvested because we're unwilling to lift up our eyes and to look? Could your office be white for the harvest, but you don't know it because you aren't looking? Now, From the macro perspective, John includes this story because really, perfectly illustrated the radical statement that Jesus made to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, this Jewish religious rabbi, for God so loved the world. Now, why is that radical? Because God loved Israel. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not just about Israel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, not just Jews, but guess who? Samaritans should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, which is what the Jews would have done if they had gone into Samaria, but that the world or Samaria through him might be saved. Like There was no better way to hammer home God's love for the world to a Jew than to go into Samaria. Well, the Jews hated the Samaritans. I think you pick this up through the text, don't you? That Jesus loved them. While the Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs, Jesus intentionally goes there to minister to Samaritans. While the Jews saw the Samaritans as unredeemable, Jesus saw it much differently, right? He saw a harvest 
While the Jews judged the Samaritans, Jesus came to save them. Not judge them, not condemn them to save. Ironically, while the Jews rejected Jesus, the Samaritans willingly accepted him as the Christ, the Savior of the world. In this exchange with this woman in verses 21 through 24, Jesus appears to do something I think very important. He seems to tie the example that he's setting in the moment with the ultimate plan of God that would be soon enacted. Looking again, verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, salvations of the Jews. But the hour is coming. It now is. When true worshipers, it's not about location, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And guess what? It's not about going to some place to worship. The Father is seeking such to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, how interesting that in the Great Commission, you know the Great Commission, Jesus, before ascending to heaven, leaves about 120 followers with some instructions, right? Those instructions... Be witnesses to me where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, into the ends of the earth. How fascinating that in John's gospel, up until this point, where has Jesus ministered in sequence? Well, first he came and he ministered in Jerusalem. And then he spends time baptizing where? In Judea. And now he goes to Samaria where harvest existed. Jesus asked the church to do something he was willing to first do himself. If you continue to read the record of the early church recorded in the book of Acts, after the Christians, the church came to dominate Jerusalem and Judea, a persecution arose. And what happened? Well, beginning in chapter 8, we see a man by the name of Philip, followed then by Peter and John, Go to Samaria of all places, a place that was still, even years later, prime for the harvest. Once again, this is likely another reason John found it so important to include this story in the gospel. Aside from the obvious reason, and we've looked at it, this revival, the obvious reason Jesus felt it necessary to go to Samaria, and we'll get to the, <clears throat> the more particular implications of going for this woman, because that can't be overlooked. Go back to the beginning. For just a second, we're going to go a little bit of a different angle. John tells us something interesting right from the beginning. He tells us Jesus first, before all this happened, right? Before he, he decides to go to Galilee, before he ends up in Samaria, he needs must go. Before all that, something else happens. We're told that Jesus first decided to, quote, leave Judea. Now, I know that seems very straightforward. Leave Judea. Yet this is one of those instances where the English translation really fails to communicate the true intention of the author. Like the, the idea in the original Greek language is that Jesus made an intentional decision to literally abandon Judea. It wasn't just leaving, to abandon. That's what the word literally means. 
it wasn't that Jesus was simply leaving Judea, he left her. Like that idea is so strong in the Greek. The word that's, that's being used here was commonly used to describe the act of a husband divorcing or leaving his wife. Wasn't he decided to bounce? He was leaving her, leaving Judea. As we've already seen in John 2, verse 24, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of, of all men, which is why we're told, John tells us, he did not commit himself to them. Jesus, in making this decision, to, he knew who these Pharisees really were. Like he knew what type of violence, what type of evil they were capable of. Jesus knew what the religious establishment would ultimately do to him. He knew this did not end very well. And it's for this reason that Jesus decides to leave Judea. Like, I think from a much larger perspective, this macro perspective, in so many ways, in those two words, that Jesus left Judea, what's being communicated to us by John is that from Jesus' perspective, the marriage was over. The marriage with Israel. And in many ways, Jesus here, by going to Samaria, is laying the framework to call out for himself a new bride. We'll come back to that thought at the end of our study. You see, after celebrating Passover in Jerusalem, remember when he arrives, what does he do? He cleansed the temple of the money changers. He shuts down shop. He declares an end to Jewish religion in so many ways. And then he goes and he spends a period of time baptizing in the Jordan. But Jesus at this juncture, as the Pharisees begin to circle, he decides, man, it is time to abandon the religious scene. This scene in Judea, forget it. I'm going to Galilee. I'm going to spend my ministry there. But before going to Galilee, Jesus had to go to Samaria. You not find that interesting? Like, in a way, Jesus leaves the halls of power to go rub shoulders with the pagans. He leaves the church pew to go hang out on the street corner. He leaves behind the Puritans to go spend time with half-breeds. Jesus leaves Judea to go to Samaria. I can't articulate how radical that is. And once again, Jesus' activities here illustrate the fact that following the rejection of the gospel by the Jews, the gospel would be extended to Samaritans and the Gentile world. Jesus would call from the nations a new holy people unto himself, the bride of Christ. Along these lines, and really with the premise that John's gospel has a loose parallel with the book of Genesis. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus ends up not just going to Samaria, but he ends up specifically in a city called Sychar. John even adds that this city, and he invokes some references to Genesis, right? That this city was near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and that Jacob's well was there. And it's not an accident 
Jesus goes to Samaria, goes to Sychar, and goes to this particular well for a little R&R. The city of Samaria, known as Sychar in Jesus' day, was in actuality the capital of Samaria. Historically speaking, and as it pertains to the book of Genesis, you should note that this city is known by another name. In ancient times, it was known as Shechem. And keep in mind, the city of Shechem possessed an incredibly rich biblical history. You know, in many ways, Shechem was actually ground zero for God's relationship with the children of Israel. Initially, Shechem, Sychar, was the location where God first appeared to Abram when he arrived in the promised land, declaring that he would give to him and his descendants this section of territory. Genesis 12, this is where it took place. And then years later, Shechem ends up being the city where Jacob, who had already been renamed Israel, ends up building an altar to the Lord. When he returns to the land after spending 20 years with his father-in-law Laban in Haran. So you have Abraham, God commissioning Abraham. Then you have God commissioning Jacob, all in the same place, Shechem. Aside from that, the city was given by Jacob to Joseph. Shechem would become the ultimate burial place for Joseph when the Israelites returned to the land following their Egyptian captivity. Now, once again, macro perspective, this detail I don't think is at all coincidental. Consider, Jesus arrives to Jerusalem for Passover. He's disgusted by what he discovers. He cleanses the temple. Then he has a conversation with a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus about new birth and everlasting life, which in the moment totally sails over this man's head. Now, Nicodemus would later become a believer. But in the moment, he leaves the conversation questioning. Finally, after spending some time baptizing in the Jordan, the Pharisees honing in, Jesus seems over it. I'm done. He leaves Judea. He goes into Samaria, specifically to the city of Shechem, the very place his dealings with Abraham and Jacob or Israel began. I don't think it's an accident at all. And Jesus then, he ministers to a broken Samaritan woman. Doing what? How did Jesus do it? We'll get to this next week. But Jesus ministers to her by specifically contrasting what? Himself with Jacob. She even makes the comment. So are you greater than Jacob? To which Jesus kind of says, absolutely. Like he makes a contrast. Well, Jacob's well required hard work to draw water that would never satisfy, which is the flaw of religious works. It's dead water. Jesus promises what? Living water that upon consumption does something supernatural within the heart of the individual so that you never thirst again. He contrasts himself with Jacob. Grace and works, a relationship with him and religion, all in Shechem. Not only is Jesus illustrating the ineffectiveness of religion to address an internal thirst, but the reaction of this sinful woman with that of a pious religious Nicodemus. I also don't think that's an accident. 
Yes, we have this small little scene between the two, but I think John in writing is trying to draw a parallel between this woman and Nicodemus. Like really take a minute and think about the comparisons because the comparisons will illustrate the fact that religious moralism, religion, is the greatest wedge that exists between a person and their Savior. Don't be mistaken. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. You know, Nicodemus, Nicodemus came to Jesus, right? But not this woman. This woman does what? She specifically, Jesus specifically sought her out. One conversation took place under the cover of darkness. The other in broad daylight. Nicodemus was a, a, a moral man. This woman, a known sinner. Nicodemus was part of the establishment. This woman was a societal outcast. Nicodemus honored Jesus with flattering statements. This woman's natural reaction was to immediately question Jesus' very intentions, his motivations. Nicodemus was inquisitive. This woman, a skeptic. Nicodemus came with a question seeking an answer. This woman came to draw water because she was thirsty. Nicodemus left his encounter with Jesus wrestling over theological implications. This woman left an encounter with Jesus forever changed by an experience. Nicodemus left doubting. This woman left proclaiming. Nicodemus left thirsty while this woman's internal thirst was forever quenched. And note, the only difference that really mattered between Nicodemus and the woman at the well is that while they were both drinking from Jacob's well, one literally and the other figuratively, this woman, unlike Nicodemus, was ready to receive all that Jesus had to offer because she could admit that her internal need had never been addressed by the water Jacob and his well provided. Next Sunday, we're going to look again at this, this story we're going to get into more of the, the particular you know, implications of this exchange between Jesus and the woman. There's a lot to unpack. But before we close, i, I got to return to an idea. In Genesis 12, God appeared to Abraham and Shechem and commissioned he and his descendants to be his special people, right? How interesting that in John chapter 4, after leaving Judea, God appeared to a Samaritan woman in Shechem and extended to her the same invitation he had given to Abraham and Jacob. He says the hour is come the now the hour is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking and wasn't Jesus seeking such to worship him God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth friend what makes this story so amazing to me? From the big picture, what is Jesus doing? Why must he needs go? Well, is that Jesus went to reestablish the type of people he would call to be part of his family. That's what he's doing. And why? <laughs> For God so loved the world. Like this woman, you don't have to be moral or religious to be included in Jesus' family. 
For that matter, you don't have to have your act together. You don't even have to be seeking him. The Samaritan woman was not. For in Shechem, Jesus here in John 4, he turned it all on its head. He extended an invitation beyond the descendants of Abraham, beyond the descendants of Jacob, Israel. He extended the invitation to be part of his family to all men and all women. We'll explore this in more details next Sunday, but please know that Jesus does not seek out the religious moralist who has deceived themselves like Nicodemus into thinking their good deeds make them right before God. Religion, as mentioned, is a wedge that separates a sinner from a Savior. Instead, Jesus, what we see in this story, by His grace and His grace alone, He enters your mundaneness, your life, your moment, and He invites you to take a drink. He invites those who are thirsty to drink from living water that does something inside so that it it bubbles up into a fountain so that you'll never thirst again. Once again, what is Jesus addressing? Something that happens internally. Yes, what Jesus offers first requires that you make an admission. That you admit that the well that you've been drawing from has left you thirsty. But please know, friend, that what Jesus is offering you this morning does not have to be earned. It doesn't. All what Jesus offers, all it demands, is that you receive it, that you partake of it, and then you enjoy the life that he's giving. Look at what Jesus promised. What I shall give him, or her, will become in that person a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. As we close, if any of these truths concerning Jesus. If any of this stuff strikes a chord in your heart that you're willing to not just accept, but surrender yourself to. If Jesus this morning has appeared at your well. I'd ask that you'd pray this prayer and if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes.